We are starting a series today on a topic we have never tackled in this format before. We are walking through the doctrine of the Trinity. What does it mean? And we're going to cover it over four weeks. Today we'll talk about the Father, next week the Son, third week the Holy Spirit, and the fourth week a new version of God that we created ourselves. No, I'm just kidding. The fourth week we're going to talk about what it means that they are in relationship themselves and how does a communal relational God affect our lives as communal relational people. And so today we'll talk about the Trinity and I'm going to ask permission of all of you, whether online or in person, I'm going to need you to a little bit put on your student hat a little bit if you can. If you have a notes app that you take on your phone, it might be helpful. If you have a journal and a pen, it could help organize your mind because the Trinity is complex. The Trinity is very old and we can watch the development. I'll talk about the biblical theology of it from the Old Testament, New Testament, as well as we're going to dig a little bit into some early church history and look at the Desert Fathers, as well as some councils that happened in the fourth century. So we're going to take a journey together. Beginning with the question of what is God? Who is he? How does this work? How do I relate to him? What is God? How does he operate? Polls in the last five years surveying evangelical Christians and Christians as a whole in America and the Western Hemisphere have shown some odd tendencies of all of us. The first one being, in the United States, 87% of all people believe in some concept of God. They believe God is real and is something that's out there. That's the majority, almost all of the people, 87%. And then also surveying evangelical Christians, they came away with very odd data as well. Like 43% of evangelical Christians don't necessarily believe that the Holy Spirit is a person, but a force that works among us and moves and operates. That 30% of Christians believe that Jesus is lower than the Father and that the Father is God on high and then Jesus serves under him or is made by him. You may even be hearing these and thinking to yourself, well, what's the big deal? Yeah, that kind of sounds all right. Those are 2,000-year-old church heresies that until 100 years ago, you would have been removed outside of the church and not be able to take communion in. But for the sake of a chaotic world where things are moving and changing, and I think for many of us, out of honestly a reaction of generations of Christians that formed too concrete of boxes and drew too firm black lines of what God is and isn't and how we interact or don't interact. And you can only pray this way and operate at church in this manner that we've overreacted to a general humility of saying, eh, I don't know. God is who he is and I don't understand it and I just trust his creation and making in the world. But when we read the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the overarching narrative tells us a very clear picture of the character of who God is. And when we read the story of Jesus, and at this church we are all about leading people to him, Jesus had a very clear picture of who God was and is. And as American uh, church theologian A.W. Tozer said famously, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It dictates who we are, how we view other people, creation, and other human beings, all based on how we understand God. Which brings us to 
a conclusion the church came to 1,700 years ago, which is still true, in one sentence. God is one being in three persons. That's the sentence. One being in three persons. Every one of those words, important and argued over and fought over and edited again and again over hundreds of years, each and every word. God is one being in three persons. St. Augustine in the 5th century, wrote, whoever denies the Trinity is in danger of losing his salvation. And whoever tries to fully understand the Trinity is in danger of losing his mind. We sit somewhere in this middle ground of sitting under the mystery of God while also pressing in to understand him as fully as we can. And while I believe in our faith, that the nuanced details of what we believe are not as important as a heart of trusting God's provision in our lives, part of our journey of mature people, of thoughtful followers of God, is to know him better and more clearly and more fully so that I can trust him more clearly and more fully. If you asked me as a child why I trusted my father, I would tell you he's the strongest man in the world. He can do everything. He is strong and capable. I've seen him catch a baseball in a coffee cup as he finished his coffee. I've seen him put fences up and tear down trees. He's just the strongest person. Not to malign my father, but at 36, I know my dad is not the strongest person in the world. I probably have met at least two people I think were stronger. As a teenager... I became acutely aware that my father was not the center of the universe or the strongest person, and as all teenagers, overreacted to that I may be the strongest and smartest person in the universe. As an adult, I now understand that I trust my father not because he is the strongest and most capable person, but I trust my father because he loves me more fully and completely than any other man in this world. And I trust the more rich, nuanced aspect of who he is. And as I now know more about his character and who he is, his history, his past, his weaknesses as well as his strengths, I can trust him more fully as I more richly understand who he is. And it may not be as poetically pretty as his young child saying he's the strongest man in the world, but it is more richly beautiful to say I understand him with greater depth and I'm able to trust him in that complexity. When we talk about God and who he is, a journey of understanding the complexity of who he is allows us to trust him more richly and fully. Let's tackle it in two parts and then we'll launch into talking about the Father today. The first being God as one being. What does it mean that God is one being? We understand our faith, you may know the technical term of a monotheistic religion a religion believing in one existence of a God, so one being. This is specific language I did not create. It's a term that's almost 2,000 years old. God having one will, one substance, never changing in that will and substance. It is why, as we read the Bible, 
Abraham leaves his nation, his culture, and everything he knows to follow this God speaking to him because he understands that this is the one true God with will and power in this world. It's why Moses encounters this God in a burning bush and does what is insane, goes back to the community that he would be a slave in, back into the community where he's wanted for murder, back into the community that threw him out, where he in his mind would most likely be rejected and die, he can go back into that because he believes this is the one true God who is unchanging, who is the maker of all things. He can put his trust in that being. It's why the Israelites were able to hold out hope even during an exile when their world had crashed down around them and everything they thought about the world and their faith and their existence was turned upside down. They were able to say, I still trust in our God because I believe he is bigger than this, he is greater than this, and he is still in control of all things. This is why it is important that we hold to the understanding that our God is one and our God is unchanging and our God is all-powerful and our God is in control. The author of Deuteronomy says it like this in the beginning of what is known as the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord alone. In other translations, the Lord our God is one. It is ownership He is our God and we are his people. It is singularity. He is the only one that ever will be, that ever has been, and he is the God we trust in. It is exclusivity. There is no other hope. There is no other way but by this God who has called us. And it is superiority. There is nothing else that can overcome his power, his will, and his love. Isaiah says it. As the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, is on threat of being destroyed, reflects on God's provision and oneness as this. In Isaiah 43, verse 10. But you are my witnesses, O Israel. You are my servant. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There has never been and never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord. And there is no other Savior. A prophet writing as his kingdom is crumbling around him, able to say, I will not give up hope because our God is the only hope and our God is still capable and powerful. You are about to be taken away. People are going to speak poorly of the God you served because your kingdom was overtaken. You are going to learn about other gods and other kingdoms that worship those gods and you will be pressured to bow at your knee to those gods. But remember, there is no other. I am it. I am the end of the game. I am all of it and I provide all. We believe in one God, one source of creation, one source of salvation, and one authority in this world. And yet, you read the Bible, and it's not always so clear as to that. Yeah, there's one God, and there's passages like Deuteronomy and Isaiah that speak of his oneness, but also there is terminology to refer to three other persons that they consider God. And this is where we get the next part. God is three persons, one being, three persons. If there's only one God, why does the Bible refer to three other persons, Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit? 
God is one being, as their terminology says, expressed in three persons. He is Trinity, which is not a term that appears in the Bible. It's not in there, can't find it. But it is a term to understand a concept and a character that runs throughout the Bible. It is a term to help us understand a complex being known as God. The Trinity exists all the way throughout the Bible. From Genesis chapter 1, where the Spirit is hovering over the water and God the Father is creating and His words are Jesus Christ, the Son, actively creating as we know from John 1. He is active in revelation as the community of God is brought together by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit to declare that the Son is the one Savior as we come before the Father. And he happens all throughout the pages. Most famously, and I think most completely, to understand the Trinity is Luke chapter 3, verse 22. The story of Jesus' baptism. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit, in bodily form, in other pages, as a dove, descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved Son, and you bring me great joy. This passage, powerful to understand the character of God because it is all three persons of God, active and present in one moment. Jesus is there, obviously, being baptized, rising up out of the water. The Father is there declaring his love over Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is there present, embodying and connecting together the person and presence of God. And we see the three persons of the Godhead doing what the three persons of the Godhead have done for all eternity. Number one, the Father is loving the Son Number two, the Son is being obedient to the Father. And number three, the Holy Spirit is actively working among them. The Father loves, the Son is obedient, and the Holy Spirit empowers and connects. Let's continue. Matthew 28, verse 18. Famously, we use this passage when we talk about discipleship, loving and leading other people into Jesus' presence. This is how Jesus himself frames it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of God, Yahweh, Jesus, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this is the most complete encouragement we have towards Trinitarian theology, as they call it. Jesus Christ saying, when you baptize them, when you disciple them, when you teach them about me or the character of God, you are teaching them about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is naming all three persons in one unified sentence. He is putting them on equal footing as one and the same. And he is commanding us to baptize others and to disciple others to this idea of one being in three persons. All right, lastly, we'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. There are many verses I could have chosen, but I chose this one by the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says this as a prayer over them. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is important because it's not Jesus interacting in the Gospels. It's not a Nicene Creed happening 400 years later. This is early churches 
and the early church's theology of how they understood God. This is probably 30 years, 40 years or so after Jesus' resurrection, churches being established, and this is how they understood God as the first Christians. They understood God as the grace that comes from Jesus, Jesus being obedient and providing his life for us, the love of the Father, loving the Son and loving us, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, present and moving and binding. You can see a consistent view of the distinction of the persons inside of the being. Okay, now we're going to walk some ancient history. So this is where you really got to focus up and you got to power through. Ancient history from Paul all the way to about 325 and then 381 AD. We'll talk about church history. There is a biblical consensus that God is Trinitarian. We just looked at it from the Old Testament to the gospel stories, to Pauline letters, to Revelation. There is a consistent biblical understanding that God is one being in three persons. The early writings of church fathers, ones we don't study all that often that exist from the writing of the Bible to 400 AD, people like Origen, people like Tertullian, people like Arrhenius, people like uh, Origen of Cyprian, the early church fathers and the desert fathers, all of them wrote an understanding of one being in three persons. Many of them never interacting with each other, living hundreds of miles from each other, writing letters of one being in three persons. We then move to what is known as the Arius controversy. You probably have no idea what this is, but this is one person who came out and said, God is one being, and so Jesus cannot be equal with the Father. He's created by the Father. It becomes popular to the point where the church has to have a meeting in 325 AD and respond to this. They decide Arius is a heretic. And this is not the view of God. It's not acknowledging the equality of the three persons in one being. And they call it the Council of Nicaea. They then meet again in 381 and they add in language, the Holy Spirit is equal with the Father and the Son. All of them begotten and not made. All of them God equal. We'll read it together. This has been unifying church doctrine, has been language unchanged, and agreed upon by Catholics, Greek Orthodox, with a weird filioque controversy in the ninth century, Reformed, Pentecostal, Baptist, all have agreed on this language for nearly 2,000 years and written 1,700 years ago. We believe in one Father, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all of the things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. Now maybe some of that language is a bit old school for us, but you can recognize in this language, 1,700 years old, the common thread of what we sing and how we teach and how we understand the Bible. And I think there is beauty that from the writing of Scripture through to the first established councils of the church, through reformations and divisions and wars of the church to now 8 billion people on earth, that the Christian view of God has consistently been one being in three persons. 
And it's beautiful because in understanding God in this way, it means he's not just a conceptual being that we can maybe understand or kind of see. He's not just like any other monotheistic religion out there and just the same God as the God in any religion around the world. What it means is our God is knowable. Our God has a distinct personality to who he is and how he operates. That we can know him as a father. We can experience him as the son. And we can engage with him as the spirit. And we can know him in that complexity. To know the Trinity is to know God, an eternal and personal God of infinite beauty, interest, and fascination. The Trinity is a God we can know and forever grow to know better. In essence, the Trinity tells us that our God is relational. And we will spend our final week, our fourth week of this series, talking exclusively about that what it means that our God that we serve is relational and communal and how that impacts us as a church relationally and communally. But today we're going to look at God the Father. And we're going to simplify it down and we're not going to try to do too much with it today. We will look at God the Father in two senses and pull out a few scriptures to illuminate this personality, this person in the being of God. We begin first with before anything existed before creation. What was God doing before creation? What was he doing? Who was he? What motivated him, animated him, moved him, encouraged him? We didn't exist yet. I wasn't born yet. He must have been super bored. I wasn't here. We weren't here. There weren't trees, planets, stars. What was he doing? Before the earth existed, before anything was created, before the universe was expanding on end forever, The Father was loving the Son. This was God's posture, performance, and personality before anything ever existed. And it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around, but for all eternity before creation, all eternity after Christ restores it, the Father will be loving his Son in Christ Jesus. In John 17, verse 24, Jesus says this about the Father. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Jesus, who we will discover next week, is begotten, not born, not created. It means Jesus has always existed. And if Jesus has always existed, it means God has always been loving always been expressing that love on his son, always been knowing and growing in that community, encouraging each other, loving and believing in each other. It means it is the foundational character of the God we serve from Genesis to Revelation and still today that God's dominant character is that he is a loving father. More than he is omniscient, more than he is omnipotent, more than he is savior or creator, he is loving Father. And as we say as a church, we come into Jesus, and this means we understand the Father because of Christ Jesus. God is a Father because Jesus exists. And I'll ask you a weird mind question for yourself. For your father, were they ever a father before you became their child or their firstborn became their child? 
did their child ever exist where they weren't a father? God the Father is a father because Jesus exists. Jesus is the Son because God is a father. It is inherent in their community. And to start with Jesus, we see Jesus referring to God over and over again as Father. We see Jesus quote from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, talk about Abraham and Moses, teach from Isaiah and Ezekiel, quoting Psalm 22 on the cross with his last breath. And as we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, a term for God rarely used before the recording of Jesus' life is the Aramaic term of Abba. A colloquial, common usage of dad. It expresses a certain intimacy and a certain relationship. Not just the reverence of my father that I'm afraid of, but my dad that I know and can embrace and can love. Jesus is the one who tells us God is not a far distant being. God is not a powerful being who is judging you and ready to destroy you. He is your father. And I can tell you about him because he is my father. As Athanasius says in the fifth century, our definition of God must be built on the son who reveals him. And often we do that, starting with the son, we find that the first thing to say about God, as it says in the creed, we believe in one God, the Father. And this Father God, we understand, does two things as a person in the Trinity. And really just, we can boil it down to two things, two unique characteristics of the Father. The Father is, as we said, love itself poured out. The Father loves and the Father gives life. The Father creates life, births life, creates new life, and then the Father loves the life He has created. The Father is the being who breathed His Holy Spirit into dirt and created man. The Father is the one who spoke and spoke the world into existence. The Father is the one who spoke and brought life back into Jesus Christ in the grave and resurrected Him. And the Father is the one who declares loving grace over all of his creation. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. John says this about the Father. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is is love. For my friends who have children, they have all said to me the same sentence. And if you are a parent and you have a child, you may have experienced this yourself. They all have said this to me. The moment I held my child in my arms and made eye contact with that little human being, I realized I had never loved anything else in the world the way I love this person. All of them have said this to me, this experience for them, that to be a father is to love that which is created out of you and is to expand your understanding of love. The nature of God is to love his creation and to love his children, to create life and to take care of that life because he is a loving father. He's paternal and maternal in one being, caring and loving and creating and loving again. 
and for us to be introduced to that being, to that Father, to that God, is akin to having a relationship with the greatest person you've ever known. And I'm sure all of us can probably think of maybe one person in our life that we've experienced or had a relationship with that that person just felt sort of special. They were just kinder or more brilliant or loving or gentle. And every time you spent time with that person, you left feeling like you became a better person. One night with them and you're like, oh man, I am too judgmental. One night with them and you're like, I'm not generous enough. And you're with them and they make you better. This is the call throughout creation to relationship with the Father. That the more time we spend in his presence and the more we discover about him, the better and more loving we become. The relationship we may have with God is defined by this dynamic. As much as you may find to love about God, and maybe we have a worship night and you're really feeling it in that worship night and you're going for it. You're, I'm really loving God in this moment and I'm singing out lyrics that are way hyperbolically poetic, but I'm feeling all of them. Or there's a moment you first come to salvation and you recognize all that has brought you into that moment and all your sin and your shame and you recognize God taking it away from you and forgiving you of it. Or a moment you're involved and you're discipling somebody else and you see this beautiful vision of what can become and what God is doing and you're overwhelmed with this sense of love and gratitude for who he is. I promise you, will never be a fraction of what your father feels about you and is capable of giving to you. He is not just a loving being, he is love itself. He is more practiced. He has done it from the beginning of eternity for all time. He is a practiced, generous lover. He is more capable by his very nature and power, and it is in his nature to love. Two asides as we talk about God the Father. First one being, I know when we speak of God as Father, not everybody has the same metaphor and imagery of father from your own earthly father. And I know that for a lot of followers of Jesus, it's sometimes hard to engage with God on this level because you have a lot of pain associated with the role of father. Maybe your father abandoned you. Maybe your father wasn't very loving. Maybe your father was abusive or a very hateful person. God the father is not called father because he copies earthly fathers. He is called Father because He is the very nature and image of a perfect loving Father that many and all human fathers will fall short of. He is not a pumped up version of your dad. And we don't transfer the failings of our earthly fathers onto Him. Instead, it is the other way around. We look to God the Father as the image and as the ideal in which we aspire to love each other. And if you have a struggle with your father and a bad example of it in your life, I just encourage you to know that you have another father who loves you completely and powerfully and from his own loving grace into who you are. And he loves you and adores you and values you and believes in who you are and wants to be in relationship with you and empower you and live life together with you, not just on this earth, but for all eternity. He loves you that much. Secondly, I know when we talk about God the Father, 
that for 50% of us in the room, it is tough to understand and kind of relate to a father figure because you never will be a father because you're a woman and you will maybe be a mother or maybe you won't in your life. There is biblical imagery that God as father is not the end of our understanding of God. He uses maternal imagery as well. Whether it's in Isaiah 66, he talks about giving comfort to his people as a mother comforts her child. Jesus, in Matthew 23, refers to all created beings. He says, I want to embrace you as a mother hen embraces her children. And as much as the Bible uses father, it is still not encompassing enough in our human language for who God is, both father and mother, creator of all things, lover completely of all of us. All right, now let's jump back in. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus explains this about his relationship with the Father. He says, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me, and it comes from finishing his work. And now Jesus, his dominant characteristic is his obedience to the Father. He loves the Father through obedience to lay down his heavenly right and come to earth as a man. Obedience to love the created beings who may not be loving him back. Obedience to take on the sin of all created beings onto his own shoulders and obedience to die on a Roman cross. And then in that obedience, God the Father fulfills his promise and resurrects him to new life. And Jesus then gives us the same charge, the same call, that our nourishment in life is not just to live and be loved and to live on this earth, but that our meaning and purpose comes from knowing the will of our maker, of knowing the Father. We are made, the truth of our being, we are made to know the love and life that the Father has given us. We are made to know that to know that we are loved not just for this earth, but for eternity, that we bear in us the very breath of God the Father, that we are made in his image, and that like the Father, we are made to create life and to love that life that is created. We are made in his image. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 gives us that call to create and to make beauty, to care for that which is beautiful and bears the image of God. And Jesus says, I am not just nourished by food or by water or by shelter or sleep. There is a part of me that is incomplete if I am not doing the will of my Father. And each of us can search our soul and know that unlike the other created beings on this earth, your dog or your cat, we have existential questions as to who we are and what our purpose is in life. And we yearn and we struggle to try and find our identity. Am I just flesh and blood? Do I just pass on my genetic code to my children and hope that people remember me that way or write enough on Twitter that someone remembers me down the road? Or am I made for some eternal purpose? Am I made with some eternal being's image in me and life in me? And will I forever be restless 
until I connect myself with his will and plan for my life. It is what we may consider to be our longing as human beings. We long to be like and be with our Father, our Abba, our Dad. It is a part of us that does not feel complete until we are perfectly in his loving presence. Jesus loved the Father so completely that he said, it is like eating and drinking to me. I need to hear his voice and know his will. I need to be in his presence and experience his love. Full disclosure, I don't always feel that way. It is actually probably rare for me to feel that way, that idyllic way that Jesus feels it. But I have moments where I feel that I am not in line. And I feel it usually in my gut. This something is wrong. I'm not in the right place. I'm not being obedient. Something is off in me. And I know in those moments I haven't spent time to reconnect myself to the will of my Father. And it's in those moments that we, 2,000 years later, can be reminded that because of Jesus Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, because of his gracious body and blood, we can turn back to our Father and seek his will. In our bedroom, in our car, at work, here in an altar space, we can turn to the Father and ask, what is your will for me right now? Shape me and move me and remind me of my purpose. As Paul writes to the church, Galatians 4, 6, he says, because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. We have the Trinity working again, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. The Father has loved the Son The Son has been lovingly obedient to the Father. And now because of Jesus, we call him Father in that same way. We call him Abba, Father, and we ask him, Lord, what is your will for my life that I may love you and know your love more fully? John 15, verse 9, our final verse the outcropping of this relationship. Jesus saying, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. As we understand the character of God, the journey in understanding one being in three persons, is that we would get a fuller picture of who our God is. And by that, a clearer reminder to us of who we are. Who am I? What are we made to do? And as Jesus speaks to us, I have loved each of you. I have loved the community around me in the same way that the Father has loved me. I have lived out that character and that community by loving you. And this is our call too. As we know the Father, we understand that our call as his image bearers 
as his children brought back into his presence by Jesus is to create life and to love the life that is around us, is to love our fellow image bearers, to love in this room, in the community that God has given to us, to love one another, to lay down our lives for each other, our preferences, our desires, to lay it down that others would feel the love of God through us, and then to love this world into relationship with Jesus Christ because we are like our Father who is a giver of life and a lover of that life he makes. If you'll pray with me this morning. I want to give an opportunity. If you're in the room and you would say, you're not confident about your relationship with God, but you want to know him, I want to give you a chance just to take one step in faith to know God through Christ Jesus, to receive the grace he has for you. And if that's you today, I'll give you a chance just to pray this prayer along with me today. If you are a follower of Jesus, member of this church, I'll just ask you to commit and recommit in this moment. God, I want to know you better. I want to understand my purpose in this life better, who I am, what I'm made to do and to be. Help me to understand you that I may understand myself. In this moment, God, I believe that you are love and I believe that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten, into this earth that we would experience your love, that we would come back to you as your children and that in Jesus, you took our sin upon yourself. You bore the weight of our sin and shame and death on the cross and you died in our place. You were buried in the ground and on the third day, you rose from the grave, resurrected with the fullness of life and that by you, Jesus, we are now, I am now able to call God my heavenly father. You gave your life to me. Today in this moment, I commit my life to follow and know you. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. I'll invite you to stand with us all over the room. I'll have two members of our leadership to my left and my right up here. If you need or want to respond in prayer this morning, if you have a prayer need today, whether that is a prayer need that's physical or emotional or spiritual, we want to be able to just pray with you today in this service. And as we close out, you'll have an opportunity to receive that prayer. Even if you need to pray through, you have your own issues with your own father or you need to experience God's love this morning or you just want to be in his presence, we invite you just to come forward and we'll pray with you or you can pray at the altar here on your own. And as we close out, I invite you to pray with and to press in to the presence of God as our loving, life-giving father as we close out in one final psalm and prayer today.
keeps his word and he shall thank you for your loving presence. We thank you that you are a God who is knowable with character and personhood that we can interact with and discover more of your personality and what you care about and who you are. And Lord, I pray that as we dive into the fullness of your presence, God, that we are made more like you by knowing you. I pray your presence, your loving, creative, life-giving presence go with us as we leave this space today. We thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. We still receive prayer up front if you want. Otherwise, we will see you guys next week.